AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for October 13th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by John Markley online. Welcome, John. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's good to have you. And you know, for folks that aren't uh, perhaps already familiar, John Markley works on our mobility team in terms of, uh, of security. And I think you'll be talking a little bit about some uh, uh, activities related to uh, protecting iOS platforms. So we have uh, John Hogeboom here. The other John. Besides yes. John Markley, I'm the other <laughs> yes, John. Yes, we do have the other John. <laughs> and uh, Matt Kaiser, welcome. Hi, Brian. How's it going? It's going well, thanks. And I'm Brian Rexrode. And uh, I guess, first of all, what we would like to do is highlight that this is October 2015 here. The uh, is uh, National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And so later on in the show, we're going to talk through some cybersecurity quiz questions. You know, I'd like to call your attention to the DHS uh, website that uh, basically designates National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And in the spirit of that, you know, just last week, we had our own cybersecurity conference. Now, I'm not sure how many folks that uh, watch this program are familiar with that, but this is uh, getting to be a really a decent sized gathering. It's a free conference. It was available online during the week, so I think we had on the order of thousands of folks participating online, and we also had on the order of about a thousand folks uh, participating at or it was the, um, the at the Marriott Marquis in, in, in Times Square. So very good conference. I thought it was pretty good. You know, for Threat Track, we had the opportunity to hand out these little tissues. No, they're actually uh, you know microfiber claws. Yes. And uh, we this have is really the highlight of the entire security conference was the opportunity oh, to yes. come see us <laughs> at the Threat Track booth and talk and, and obtain a highly <laughs> highly prized, very rare. Right, uh, microfiber cloth with our faces on it. Right, right. so uh, we have a bunch of these. I'm trying to try to hold up here. These things that are hard to uh, get control of. So in any case, uh, we handed out a bunch of those. We have some remaining still, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So folks are interested in these. Give us a send us a note. We'll figure out a way to to get one. Send to us you. a question, and if we answer it on the show. Oh, there we go. Right. Sorry. We'll we'll definitely <laughs> send you one. So, but I thought it'd be worthwhile to just take a few moments and kind of highlight some of the things from the conference. So Matt, we'll go to you first and uh, what captured your interest? Well, my favorite talk was uh, Melanie Enzen's talk. Uh, Melanie works for Facebook and she actually used to work for AT&T. So we're, we're very familiar with her, we're mm -hmm. a big fan of her. And she had a talk on uh, InfoSec's reputation. I think the general gist of the talk was that today we tend to get our message across about why mm -hmm. security is important using what amounts to scare tactics, you know, getting people mm -hmm. worried about security. And there are other ways, and Melanie outlined a couple of those, and her approach to making people feel good about fixing the security problems that we have. So That's I like that. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And you know, I think the other aspect of this perhaps is that, um, and I think she quoted um, uh, Dan Kaminsky, and uh, because he, he was in a you know, discussion and you know, pointed out that now in cybersecurity, everybody is in the room. Mm -hmm. So it's not enough to talk about the techno jargon. Everybody else has to be able to understand the concepts around cybersecurity and making that translation, building a relationship is an important part of it. So good, good observation there, Matt. You know, I think one of the things that, again, building relationship, the one of the things that sort of uh, I, I identified with is uh, John Cannon's presentation. Now mm -hmm. John Cannon in, is on our legal counsel. He helps us with our cybersecurity things. You know, I remember when cybersecurity was really a, really a technical focus. You know, how do you keep the hackers out? How do you detect them? Things like that. But now there are more significant legal ramifications, responsibilities to uphold protection of information. And so he was talking about how to build that relationship between your legal counsel and the security practitioners. And you find this? <laughs> I find this amusing because I'm, I'm a little partial to it because I might have had a name shout out to myself in that talk. Oh, so no kidding. I'll take it back. Um, I'm actually tied as to which one's my favorite. So. Yeah. Okay, very good. So anyway, I thought that was a very good talk as well. John Markley, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, it was a very good conference. Uh, I remember um, Mr. Donovan, who of course was well placed here in the company to see you know, the big picture, mm -hmm. uh, did a nice talk about some of the challenges coming up in the future. 
in particular, he pointed out that, you know, that the adversaries are getting a lot more aggressive. And, you know, and our footprint is so mm -hmm. much bigger on that what they can attack. You know, so the network's got to keep changing. We, we have more of the Internet of, of Things, more more nodes, more issues. And, and with these more aggressive attackers, we just got to increase our, uh, our uh, you know, our actions here. And, you know, I, I thought it was really good that John Donovan came to the conference and spoke in person. You know, he is basically responsible for AT&T's technology development and operations activities. So has a really significant responsibility from a technical standpoint and is a very strong advocate for cybersecurity. So uh, that's a very promising thing and it was good that he, he was able to be here. John Hogeboom, what, what did you find well, other than other, other than, other than meeting being the folks at the there, show, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I like to add Amoroso's talk, our boss, uh, mm -hmm. chief security officer for AT&T. Um, he gave a, a talk on the 10 uh, habits of highly successful CISOs. Uh, not that I'm a CISO I'm myself, but actually it really, uh, these 10 points really applied kind of universally across mm -hmm. the landscape. You could really take some uh, points from this. And uh, the number one, which is probably the most provocative that we all kind of gripped onto, was that uh, uh, number one was encourage mischief, mm -hmm. uh, which basically means not necessarily that you want to do anything malicious, but you want to be able to encourage that kind of creative uh, hacking type thinking within mm -hmm. your organization so that you have your people thinking about ways that things could be hacked and thinking kind of outside the box yeah. around problems and things that maybe people haven't thought about before. Also, uh, I forget which one. He actually, we have a handy dandy card so we can <laughs> refer to it that was handed out at the conference. But um, uh, number four takes pride in playing defense, mm -hmm. which is kind of the counterpoint of, you know, it's really easy to find that one vulnerability and mm -hmm. exploit it. But as security defenders like ourselves, the really hard thing to do is to defend against all of these different um, attack points of attack that could be leveraged uh, and being able to recognize when they're, they're yeah. being exploited. So I agree really thoroughly. So, it, you know, finding one hole versus protecting all the holes, certainly uh, it's, a, it's a higher technical challenge, but I also think it's a higher moral ground to be in a yeah. defensive mode than it is to be uh, in the attacker mode. I so. think I did take a point of saying that, like, you know, he's, he's no longer impressed if you can break into something. Right. Show me someone who's willing to do the de defensive side, that impresses him. Right. It's, it tends to be a little less glamorous in today's time. You oh, know, certainly. remember when right. security research was all focused around creating security solutions? And it seems like all the research, all the contests are around finding ways to break systems. Right. It's just that that's, uh, that's perhaps something uh, along the lines of what Melanie was talking about, let's find a way to uh, to make it a more positive, a more positive activity. I think so. he said even like off offense is or offense is easy, defense is hard. Yep, yep. absolutely, absolutely. So anyway, uh, if you didn't get an opportunity to check the AT&T cybersecurity conference out when it was online, or when it was you know actually visiting the the program, the videos will be posted. I don't actually have a. Uh, a time when they're going to be posted, but there will be video program posted. I think you still have to register for the conference to get access to the video, but uh, I think it's certainly well worth your time to uh, take a look at that. So let's go on. And uh, first item here, John Hogeboom. Yes. <laughs> the other John. Uh, so first of all, we want to pay attention to what we're doing in, in social media, and I think you have a good example why. Right. So, and we've talked about this type of thing before. So um, this particular one, uh, actually we might have even talked about this case before because this is not necessarily a new thing. Mm -hmm. However, SecureWorks, uh, they put out a, a new article that kind of goes into some pretty good depth on this actor set. They call this actor set TG2889, which is just their numbering convention, but it's mm -hmm. a Iranian-based hacking group. And what they're doing is they're using LinkedIn. They have two types of personas on there. They're creating fake profiles and they have what are called leader profiles. Mm -hmm. And then they have supporter profiles. So the leaders are ones that are like fully fledged out profiles of individuals that are fake that they've created, but look like they work for defense contractors or telecoms and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And then they have a bunch of supporter profiles that really don't have much fleshed out in their profile, but they are linked in with these people. So they create kind of a web and it looks like the leaders actually have lots of people that they're mm -hmm. linked in with. So they look legitimate. So they're using these, they believe, or from their research, um, and this actually was reported by iSight Partners, I want to say mm -hmm. back in 2014 somewhere. Yep. But this is an ongoing campaign. There's a little bit more detail uh, provided in this report than I think uh, iSight might have provided so. initially. Yep. 
But in any event, uh, they're targeting uh, LinkedIn users and they can kind of see by who's actually linked in with these leader profiles that mm -hmm. are not supporters, they're like real people, who's been targeted here. Um, so about a quarter of them are in the telecommunications vertical. A lot of those are uh, Middle East and uh, North African mobile telephony providers. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of focused on that part of the world in terms of who the, who's being targeted. There's also a smaller amount of those that are Middle East and South Asian um, government and defense organizations. So the other interesting corollary here is that they're pretty sure this actor set is also related to uh, Operation Cleaver which I think we talked about earlier in the year. Operation Cleaver was also an Iranian-based campaign mm -hmm. uh, using, and it was reported by Silance, uh, mm -hmm. is uh, the reporter of that one who wrote that report up. They used uh, kind of a fake resume application program that was really uh, like a Trojanized piece of malware mm -hmm. uh, in order to you know, recruit victims and whatnot. And the reason they're able to kind of link that up is because the domain names used in the Silance one um, I have three various companies like Northrop Grumman, uh, Teledyne, I think, and there was another one in there that I can't remember the name of. Uh, but it's the same, uh, these fake profiles in this campaign are pretending to be part of those companies. Oh. In general, this is something you'd want to obviously be wary of. When you get LinkedIn invites, kind of verify, you know, make sure that you're not linking in with somebody who's pretending to be someone that you know mm -hmm. and really is that person. I don't really have good advice about how you would do that necessarily other than calling them, but that's it's a little bit know, tricky. Yeah. It can be tricky, especially if you have a you know substantial profile, you're, you know a lot of people and you're linked in mm -hmm. with a lot of people. But it's not a new tactic. Like we said, there have been other cases I think we reported on. Uh, there was one where somebody there was an had done experiment. A, yeah. yeah, they'd done an experiment <laughs> as a stage. pen test, right, against a de defense contractor yeah. where they had a attractive woman that pretended to be part of the company and everybody yeah. in the company like linked in with her uh, mm -hmm. or accepted her invite and then they actually were able to like get a laptop by you know social engineering people within the company right. their IT personnel in any event um, and also there was um, there have been recent cases that we discussed where uh, targeted attackers are looking at the um, job postings mm -hmm. at various companies and then they'll send weaponized uh, like resumes in right. you know, a trojanized doc file that has someone's resume but it really drops a piece of malware on the machine mm -hmm. so you know the HR department or whatever in your organization might get these resumes and you know one of them might be a trojanized thing yep. like that. who would have thought the HR department is one that really is perhaps the most exposed in terms of uh, be, being potentially, you know, uh, uh, receiving a, a malicious file. Right. Right? Yeah. And, and you can't really block them, otherwise you'd be blocking the resumes. They have right. to be able to get to those. And chances are, safely. they might even just forward those right on to the actual, depending on the size of the organization, they might mm -hmm. forward that resume on right to it could continue on, the, um, yeah. the part of the company that's actually hiring for that position, mm -hmm. which might be where they really, whoever this you know, target attacker is trying to get. Mm -hmm. So things to be really wary of and careful about as you're you know, doing these social interaction type engagements out on the internet. All right, very good. Okay. Interesting story. So Matt, let's go to you. And uh, you know, we're frequently talking about denial of service attacks, but we haven't really talked about the subtleties of you know, one mitigation service versus another and how they might uh, have, one, some might have advantages over others. So tell us what you found. So there's a, a new tool out, and it's also accompanied by a research paper uh, the tool is called Cloud Piercer, and it's mm -hmm. a really fascinating tool from my perspective. I read the paper last night as sort of my evening reading, and I was uh, hooked. <laughs> the, but the whole idea is that in order to do cloud-based security, which includes things like DDoS defense and, mm -hmm. and other types of you know, man-in-the-middle for, for good, some cloud-based providers will use things like DNS in order to mask the IP address of what they call the origin server. Right. So you, you hire the company, you reconfigure your DNS to point to their server so they can perform DDoS scrubbing, WAF, mm -hmm. other services like that, and then it gets routed back to you. The problem is that it doesn't always completely hide the original IP address, that origin IP. Mm -hmm. And CloudPiercer is a tool that uses a couple different techniques in order to try and find that origin IP address. Mm -hmm. And some of these are, some, are pretty interesting. IP history is a big one. So if you've just changed your IP address, 
there are services out there that will have passive DNS, and they'll right. say this domain resolved to this IP address at this point in time. Mm -hmm. If that data is still out there, people can take a look and say, well, that's the old IP address. That may still be your server, and if mm -hmm. it is, you're in trouble. So actually, some of these cloud service providers will ask you to change your IP address once you've signed up with them, so that's no longer possible. Things like subdomains, so if your mail server is the same as your primary server, is the same as some other service, you know, something.yourdomain.com, right. people can infer either the actual server or the IP range that your servers reside in, and from there can try and find out where your actual origin server right. is. So if I understand correctly, the, uh, the thing you'd be concerned about here is whereas the mitigation service is basically protecting what goes to the domain name, mm -hmm. If somebody goes and attacks the origin server IP address, it's all for naught. Then right. it's all for naught. Exactly, it could be bypassed. So, so they list out a bunch of different techniques. I found each one of them pretty interesting, and they've got mm -hmm. a tool that you can sign up for. You have to sort of prove that you own the site. Mm -hmm. um, but from there, they'll show you, you know, where the leaks are that might point to your actual origin server getting attacked. Now they're using DNS in these cases, and that's where the, the weak link kind of is. I believe that if you're using BGP, some of these go away because you don't have that DNS history or things mm -hmm. like that. So if you're using like a cloud-based DDoS defense service, you might want to look to one that has BGP. Mm -hmm. It doesn't completely take care of all these problems, but it at least solves some of them. Yep, absolutely. All right, very good. You know, that's a, and so that's, a, I guess, characteristic you want to look for in your mitigation service, that is, do they have the full repertoire of capabilities in terms of being able to redirect based on DNS? Sometimes I think that's the that may be what you really want to do, mm -hmm. or are there, you know, mechanisms for actually doing routing, which is uh, you know sort of more ingrained in the and the infrastructure of the internet and much more difficult to bypass. So there are, there are definite, definitely trade-offs, but yep. we know that, that attackers have been using techniques similar to these. Mm -hmm. you know, some, some booters will advertise that they have a, a Cloudflare bypass or mm -hmm. any of the other provider bypass as part of their service. So it's definitely being done. It's not just research at this point. It's, it's for real. <laughs> right, okay. Very good, well, thank you. Uh, John Markley, let's go to you. We'll talk, uh, let's talk a little bit about what Apple's been doing here and how that, um, I guess, the good and bad of it. Yeah, so, so really what the story is, and it was, uh, iMore uh, probably is the ultimate source of this, uh, what they reported upon is that Apple had removed some of the ad blocker programs off the App Store. Now, if you're not familiar with the ad blocker, that was actually a fairly new feature coming out with iOS 9 that let you install things on your, iOS, you know, your Apple iOS devices to block certain content and I, you know a lot of there's mm -hmm. a lot of discussion about that speeds you up right because if you speed up if you remove the ads maybe you go a little faster so people have jumped on this this technology and, and so the issue here was that apple has ended up removing some of these and so what i really wanted to talk about is not necessarily what you know they did to the apps that they removed but why and it's all based on what they call root certificate you know on a normal phone you know, you go to a uh, website, you know, you have both, and there's two streams here. One is the uh, browser. It'll go connect to the mm -hmm. you know, server on the Internet. And the other one's in your, in your app. And, and they don't necessarily use the same engine to do that. But with normal connectivity, you know, nothing really blocks it. So when you put an uh, ad blocker on, is it actually stops some traffic. So it looks at, you know, some algorithms, possibly a blacklist, and it'll block some of that traffic. Whereas they're still having the content that's necessarily the, the browser or the in-app. It's still going to get through. Mm -hmm. the, the, the key here that's probably a little tricky is, is that the bottom green arrow is, is designated the in-app connectivity. And when you look at in-app connectivity, there's not a lot of these ad blockers that block stuff that comes from within an app. So if you have an mm -hmm. app that actually goes out to surf the Internet and gets an ad, it's not going to get blocked by, by many of the ad blocker programs that are out there. Well, in fact... I mean, that's one of the security features of the platform. That is, you want to keep apps separated from each other unless the permissions are, you know, granted to be able to grant access across apps. And I think there are, you know, some limitations in the controls that are available to you. But um, forgive the <laughs> interruption. No, no, no you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and the key here is, is that, you know, there's some concern, though, that some of these apps could deliver you ads that you don't want to get. And so, you know, people are complaining that, mm -hmm. hey, my ad blocker is not blocking an app. I'm playing a game or I'm doing something. I'm still getting ads. So what has happened is, is, a, is, a, is on the next slide, what I want to show is one of the technologies that somebody chose to solve this with both apps and browsers is they, they redirect you to a third party. So basically a, a proxy or a vetting process, and they do that by installing a root certificate on the device. Mm -hmm. 
And so what that means is that when your device needs to go verify that the connectivity is valid, it sends it to this third party, which is the cloud in the middle. And it'll say, okay, if I'm going to a bad site based upon that, that third party, I'll stop it. If it's going to a good site, it'll go through. And because of this is a root certificate, it applies across the device unilaterally. The challenge here, <laughs> and it's kind of the scary part, and this is why you know Apple uh, chose to you know say let's relook at this technology, is you are having this third party vet all your traffic, and if they were mm -hmm. to be compromised or have a uh, a problem on their site, all of a sudden you know you don't have this you know this protection that just having a, a normal default or normal uh, vetted root uh, certificate would have, uh, you know, for normal uh, connectivity. So, so mm -hmm. that's where Apple's kind of gone back and said, you know, let's remove these apps, let's relook at this technology and maybe come up with a better way if you, if you still choose to do this. Yep, it makes sense. You know, I, I guess it all comes down to your little cloud in the middle about whether, first of all, you understand what they're doing, which I would venture to say that 99% of the folks that are using these things don't really have a, a clear understanding of what that little cloud is doing, that uh, third-party provider, and what the implications might be if they had a problem. So that, I think that would be sort of the first item. You know, do they know, they, do they realize their bank transactions are going through that right. third party, and should they really trust them for that? So that's, uh, I think, an aspect of this. And then, obviously, the second aspect of it is how do you decide which ones you should trust or which ones you shouldn't trust? Perhaps a little bit by implication, the fact that the app is in the App Store kind of is a little bit of an endorsement. And so I, I, I suspect that that was sort of where Apple was coming in. You know, we evaluate the integrity of apps, not necessarily a third-party provider, right? right. Or, right. you know, a, a cloud application. Okay. This is, a, you know, part of the brave new world that we're going into. It's not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. It's, a, uh, it's just one of these things that uh, one way or another we need to work it out over time. Hmm. Yeah, and some of the apps are saying that they're going to come back. You know, they're not there. You know, Apple removed them, but they're going to come mm -hmm. back. So, so they'll, so they'll, you know, they'll they'll come up with a different solution that you know that allows everybody to trust that you know that there's not going to be a problem down the road. So this is a very interesting one, and it's going to be uh, uh, worth watching to see how this gets worked out because it really is part of that transition to cloud. And how do you manage your the trust in third parties and even understand what the implications of their uh, services really are? So. A neat story. So uh, <laughs> this is an interesting one. You know, we're constantly talking about IoT and the vulnerabilities of some of the devices out there that haven't really been what I, you know, refer to as, you know, they haven't really been prepared to connect to the internet. And so, Matt, tell us what, <laughs> what's this little interim solution? <laughs> so this is not an official sanctioned interim solution by yeah. any means, but. Some researchers out there who have opted to remain nameless have released what amounts to uh, IoT malware, mm -hmm. except it's grayware. I wouldn't put the word mal in front because its, it's intentions are good. And the point of the malware is, I'm going to keep saying malware, I'm just force of habit. Good malware. Good malware. Do-gooder malware. Gray. Okayware. Palware. Grayware. The point of it is, anyway, is that it'll use the same kind of vulnerabilities that we've seen on all these devices, uh -huh. in, in, namely the, the weak passwords, weak default passwords. Connect to the device, log in, install itself, turn off Telnet, and put up a banner that says this box is, re, is um, infected with Reincarna or mm -hmm. uh, LF Watch or IF Watch. It, it's got several names, but I think the official one is WiFotch is what Symantec is calling it. So okay. I guess that's, that's what it's called now. But it also sets up a peer-to-peer -peer network. Mm -hmm. And within that peer-to-peer -peer network, it sends its own command and control of what amounts to, I guess, security detection code mm. and removed several of the, the, the popular families of these IoT malware. So in a way, it's protecting the devices by closing the hole that most mm -hmm. people would use to which, infect which, it. Which the malware often does as well. Which is true. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the authors have actually posted saying that they're they have no, you know, no ill intention in doing this. Mm -hmm. They want to secure these devices, but the, the fact remains that it's not their devices. Mm -hmm. it, it's the name Reincarna, which is in the, the banner that I've seen for it, is a callback to the Karna botnet, which mm -hmm. a couple years ago, somebody did the exact same thing, but rather than patch, they used it for uh, an internet-wide survey yeah. to scan mm -hmm. the entire internet and mm -hmm. then provide that data for public consumption. 
So I guess the big question is, is this, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Is it gray somewhere in the middle? I, I admire the intent behind it. I know these devices ought to get patched, mm -hmm. but the fact remains that you're breaking into somebody else's system and installing malware, and, and that, I, can, I can't really categorically be for that. Yeah, so perhaps it gets into the subtlety of the definition of what we, you know, we're referring to here as malware. Mm -hmm. That is, there is the getting into the device, which in, in an authorized manner, you have, I mean, there have been subtleties around that. If mm -hmm. you don't set the password, is it really? Well, that's, I mean, if, if you're using everybody else, the same keys as everybody right. else's, that you're still breaking in when you try the lock. And probably <laughs> yes. Yeah, so in any case, there, 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 there are matters of principle here. And I suspect that there's a difference between managing the principles and the sort of the, the current legal structure that we have available to enforce those principles. So mm -hmm. that's going to continue to need to evolve. And um, it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Now, do we know if there is any relationship between the folks that did the Incarna botnet and Reincarna? Is there, or is it just simply the... I don't believe so, and from what I've read from what the authors posted, they said that they are they, they consider themselves the spiritual successor. Okay. I think if they were the actual authors, they would have said this is version two. Mm -hmm. So because there is similarity there, there's the peer-to-peer -peer botnet that was yeah. some. I mean, the peer-to-peer -peer command and control was a, a, a characteristic of the Incarna botnet that um, you know we had reported on for, for quite some time. So, mm -hmm. All right. did they give this any is... details on that P2P protocol? They did not, but what they did do is they shared the entire code online. So if someone wants so to go and take a look at how it works, details. they can do <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, so we could probably figure it out. Well, that's, right, I was just wondering if there are certain ports and protocols it's using to communicate that we could yeah. look at for the internet weather. Oh, off the top of my head, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. So we'll see if we can investigate that further and get some idea. Because ultimately, now they are in a competition directly with the malicious actors, mm -hmm. and it's a matter of how cleverly they're able to actually identify the the malicious activity mali the maliciously infected devices and try to uh, so that's overtake. it's difficult to tell intent sometimes from packets mm -hmm. i think in the internet weather we're going to have a the the telnet port that they're using it, it mm -hmm. definitely figures in this week so all right very good so uh you know so there are these iot devices john i guess picked up a little bit of a Strange flaw with... Yeah, I wouldn't consider this an <laughs> IoT thing, no. but um, so I just want to make... This is a Cisco... I guess it's the Cisco ASA appliance that does... Um, uh, it's a clientless VPN, so a mm -hmm. lot of companies use this. It's basically you go to a HTTPS web page and you can log into the VPNs. They'll deliver like an ActiveX controller. I think mm -hmm. they have a Java option that actually gives you VPN connectivity, but you don't have to pre-install any kind of okay. client, right? That's convenient. So, right, it's convenient. But that's not really where the flaw lies in this. So they had a bug. It was uh, CVE 2014-3393 um, that came out last year in 2014. And um, Cisco did release a patch for this. So there's a patch has been distributed for it. However, not everybody is realize that they need to go update their appliances. Mm. So this is kind of an awareness thing just to let people know that it is being targeted. Um, this is a pretty good article from Velexity. Uh, it's worth a read. But uh, the way it basically works is on the web portal, an administrator has the ability to kind of configure some options about like what's the title, what's mm -hmm. the, you know, what am I going to display on the web page kind of thing. Well, the ability to update that page and those settings, uh, there was a vulnerability in a version of this software. Bypass. Yeah, yeah, so you didn't have to authenticate, but you could update and set something in there. So what the attackers were doing is they were just injecting a little thing that says, load this JavaScript from mm -hmm. my website over here. And what that did is when a user would go visit the VPN portal for their company, it would inject that JavaScript, which was a keylogger that was just looking for the login and password mm -hmm. when the user typed it in, and then it would record that information. Um, so, uh, not particularly uh, not particularly good if you have that happen to you, because then uh, you know uh, uh, an attacker could potentially get access to your VPN mm -hmm. as a real use. You know, look like they're connected like a regular user because they stole the credentials. Mm -hmm. so they've observed a few verticals here: medical, uh, think tank, NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations. You know, those kind of ones that try to do good things, mm -hmm. I guess. <laughs> uh, universities, academic institutions, multinational electronics. They also noticed 
um, a lot of targeting against Japanese governmental uh, mm. sites as well as uh, high-tech companies within uh, Japan. Okay. So that's interesting. Another interesting aspect is there's some connection with some of these domain names. So when they would check the JavaScript on some of these ones that they saw, the domain names used there had been used by actors that use PlugX, the PlugX malware, which is well known, is mm -hmm. a Chinese nation state type of oriented um, mm -hmm. uh, malware family. So that's a little interesting corollary there. Another important factor is if you do have this and you're running an older version, you would want to check to see if you've been uh, trojanized with this mm -hmm. injected JavaScript. Because even if you upgrade, it won't remove that. Right. So if you upgrade to the new version, it's still going to have that in your settings and still right. display it to users. You need to like kind of clean that up as well in addition to uh, upgrading your software. And then the other question that some people think, well, what about two-factor authentication? If I use two-factor, like a token, RSA token or whatnot, that should eliminate this problem, right? But the reality is, is no, because there's um, the opportunity to do session cookie hijacking. Mm -hmm. So they could just as easily, instead of grabbing login IDs and passwords, grab the session cookie that they delivered to you as an authenticated user, right. and then pretend that they're that person and connect through. As it well as on, um, it, it depends on the on the uh, the token usage, but possibly. But okay. I think you would still get a cookie. Like if uh, you logged in. Mm -hmm. With your RSA token, you're going to get a cookie back from the Cisco ASA appliance. And me as a bad guy, I could go take your cookie and I could just pretend I'm you and pick up, yeah. pick up right. from that point forward. Uh, also, you could just easily, if you're right there watching kind of real time, you could do uh, token theft or reuse. Like mm -hmm. I could just intercept and then come in as you. Did they say that the JavaScript that, that was found in the wild was actually doing token theft or session theft? Or no. is it saying it's, it's a possibility? That's a possibility, but okay. I don't think they actually right. observed that. They mostly observed the login ID password type um, harvesting. Okay. So, okay. Something to be aware of if you, um, you know, if you have that type of appliance to go check out your, your enterprise. Well, make and, sure and to keep it up to date because they, they, they do have that patch that's been patched for some time, right? So. Yes, yep. patch has been available for a, about a year, probably, I would say, but there's still some victims out there. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I mean, as we've always said, we've talked a lot about in terms of mobile devices and your home computers, but servers and appliances need to be patched as well. Right. So, you know, invariably, all software has flaws in it. It's a matter of when they come to light and whether they get exploited like this in a security sense right. and uh, so we all sort of stub our toes along the way and need to be able to uh, to, to be able to fix that up so I guess that was a perhaps a little bit of a toe stub for Cisco but perhaps you have a little bit of a victory here well yes Cisco actually has a pretty interesting victory here so Cisco has a team Talos that does some pretty interesting stuff in terms of taking down bad guys on the internet and doing interesting research uh, it turns out that they actually took action with a provider called Limestone Networks mm -hmm. in order to take down a significant portion of infrastructure around the Angular exploit kit. Mm. And they have a write-up of the, on uh, the Talos site, and it's really cool. Mm. I learned more about Angular than I'd ever known before. And actually, I think Talos learned more than anyone had previously known about Angular outside of the guys that were running it. Turns out that Angular, aside from being a regular exploit kit and delivering exploits, actually used proxy servers to pass people through to a single exploit server on the back end. Mm. So any of the servers that you may have directly communicated with if you were a victim were actually proxying the traffic back to a single exploit server. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was also like a, a stat server and a master server behind that, and a number of these were all hosted on Limestone. Talos figured this out, contacted them, and worked together with them in order to effect a takedown. Uh, apparently, I, th I hope I'm quoting this right, 50% of the Angular exploit kit traffic was a single user of, the, of Angular on Limestone's networks that wow. was responsible for $30 million worth of ransomware. So mm. Angular was being used to deliver those ransomware kits, CryptoWall and TeslaCrypt, I want to say. Okay. Mm -hmm. So pretty interesting stuff. There's a lot of good details in the report as to the different URL patterns, how mm -hmm. they changed over time. And I think it just score one for the good guys in general. Did yeah, they good. mention if there was any law enforcement interaction with this takedown effort, or was they, it just on their own? They did not mention in the article, so it's possible something was happening on the back end, but they didn't speak about it. Okay. What they did say, which I think was interesting, is Cisco's actually coming out with a new sort of service 
for, I think it's called APSIS, I just read about it today, where they do the same sort of, we come in and take a look at your data centers and figure out what's going on and try and help you clean up your act if you're mm -hmm. a, a provider like Limestone. Oh, interesting. So that seems pretty fascinating. I don't know what the, if they, maybe they've got the playbook from Limestone and they're just gonna run it on anybody else they've got, but it sounds like a good idea. Yeah, we'll see how that, uh, how that plays out. You know, that, I think it's very positive that they're taking the initiative in doing this type of activity because it, it is uh, definitely good for the internet as a whole. And, you know, perhaps, um, you know, we, we don't really emphasize this, but figuring out exactly what's going on behind these malicious activities is really not a trivial activity. That is a significant analysis to be able to determine, you know, what's going on behind the scenes and be able to trace it back to the, the, the you know, the foundation infrastructure that supports this. Mm -hmm. If you take out all those proxies along the way, it really doesn't do anything for you if that foundation infrastructure is still in place. So exactly. Hopefully, um, you know, they've, uh, this, we'll see how resilient the, the fix here is, and uh, hopefully it'll be. The, I guess the other thing to sort of uh, note about this is it, it kind of emphasizes or exemplifies the complexity of the, uh, uh, the ecosystem associated with this. That, you know, these folks have stood up an infrastructure that was complex in itself for the, to facilitate distribution of other malware mm -hmm. on systems to be able to facilitate other business areas. So it's, it really has gotten to be a sophisticated It's a business. Kind of and and yeah, people absolutely. with IT experience are, are fueling a lot of these schemes. And lots of outsourcing. <laughs> so. <laughs> so in any case. All right, so uh, thank you for doing that, Matt. Now let's, uh, John, why don't you walk us through, and I guess, again, in the spirit of the National Cybersecurity Month, walk us through some of these, uh, these questions. All right, so, so, so what I've done is I, I guess I, I needed to wear like a, a quiz hat or something, you know, a wizard hat or something of some kind, but uh, what it is I put together about, you know, five, uh, you know, ranging from easy to, you know, to, to a little bit more difficult questions uh, that, you know, that, uh, you know, just kind of for entertainment sake, I guess, and, but also educational. So question number one here is the term internet, and it refers to A, the inner lining of a swimsuit, a, B, a computerized safe. Oh, zone. John. Yeah. I, I got this one here, you know. You do? Okay. <laughs> I, I, I had to chuckle when I saw the inner lining of a swimsuit. That's you know, the, the internet. <laughs> right. The internet. Right. It's the internet. Right. Yeah, but if you you have to spell it out. <laughs> There's a T. I, in I know what the actual. I'd like to him to finish it, but I know what the the, the answers answers are for each one. <laughs> All right, go ahead, John. No, I was gonna say, you, and, and actually, I I, I did uh, plagiarize a a from some other source, so it's maybe extra points if anybody can name the source. <laughs> Then um, of course, C, a global connection of connected networks, or D, what happens to a volleyball that doesn't clear to the other side? Obviously, internet. Oh, that, into the net, yeah. <laughs> so, so what is it, guys? Well, it's 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 not the inter it's not the internet. It's not into the net. Uh, and then B, a computerized safe zone might be the intranet, but it's not necessarily safe. I wish the internet was a safe zone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, I was, I was thinking more like the uh, like E, the danger zone, the computerized danger zone. <laughs> the danger zone. All right. So I, I'm I'm gonna go with C, final answer. Okay, C, final answer. I think we all agree on this. Yeah, one. I think I think you got that one. I so think these get harder as we go, though. They they do, though. There may be a little even more more controversy down the road. <laughs> uh, question two: Computer security. The term CIA often refers to the A, Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, a B, a certified information accountant. C confidentiality, integrity, and availability, or D, computer integrated attack, or, or another choice? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, John, I think any one of these could apply, but for all the folks that have done CISSP, I think the yeah. answer is pretty obvious. Option C again. Yep. It's yes. obviously D. Although, and, oh, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> I, I would think a lot of people like to think that the Central Intelligence <laughs> Agency <laughs> has something to do with computer security, but Probably not the case. Yeah, probably not the case. <laughs> All right, so question, that's right. Good job. Uh, with C. Uh, question three. This one's a little tricky. How many devices does it take to be considered a botnet? A, one. B, two or more. C, 100 or more. Or D, thousands. Oh, geez. Well, on this one, John, I'm going to have to opt for E, but I'll let others do their input. I'm going to guess B, just by you the definition. That would be my guess, would be it, B. 
Yeah, there's uh, there's something arbitrary about 100 or thousands, right? Although I think if you've got a botnet of two, you shouldn't go around calling it a botnet. People will laugh at you. <laughs> right. <laughs> People will laugh at you. <laughs> you know, I think just by the notion of net being in the term, mm -hmm. if you have a net, you have to, I think you have at least three points. Because otherwise, you know, think of a physical net. Mm -hmm. If you don't have at least three points, it's just a string. Well, then maybe B is wrong because you have to have a controller. Well, I'm going to say E. It has to be three <laughs> or more. But uh, I, I think what, in the what spirit is the correct of, answer? Two or more is probably a reasonable. Two, two, or, two or more is a quite correct answer. A lot of people might say A, but of course A1 would be a bot. It wouldn't be a network. So that's right. Yeah. So so I think you, you hit it right on the head. You know, it's, you can't just have two because unless one of the two is the controller. So, yeah, it's it's B is probably the best answer. All right. All right, question four. Uh, jailbreaking and rooting refer to A, escaping prison through a self-made tunnel, B, providing illegal data, C, stealing credit cards, or D, modifying a mobile device to enable non-standard actions. Hmm. I was thinking this is something that the uh, that a groundhog does. <laughs> that is, breaks out of his cage and then goes rooting under rooting your, under your shed. Through my yard. And, and A, yeah. A causes is, it to sink. A is jailbreaking, but it's not rooting. Um, <laughs> And B and C, I don't really think are related. It's probably D, but honestly, I think you'd have to put in something about gaining root access to the to the system itself. Non-standard could be, yeah. I don't know. So it's a little bit too vague for me. I'd want to put something else in there. Yeah, you know, root, rooting actually comes it predates mobile devices, right? You know, okay. get, getting gaining root access to a machine. Yeah, right. Comes from Unix, I would think. Ja right. Jailbreaking is kind of something. I think that that's that generally. I think really that's the thing. It gets it gets used so differently because most people, when you're speaking in iOS, they'll call that jailbreaking. In mm -hmm. Android, everyone refers to it as rooting. Right. So there you go. But well, I think they're synonymous in that in this context, right? I think you're right. Yeah, I right. think I think you got D. 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 Sounds like the choice, and you guys are right. Okay, good job, gentlemen. All right. All right, so question number five, the last question, a little harder. Uh, threw a little uh, technical one in here. Uh, a primary difference between triple DES or three DES, depending on how you want to refer to it, and AES is A, triple DES uses 64-bit blocks, AES uses 128-bit blocks, B, triple DES uses 64-bit encryption keys, AES uses 32-bit encryption keys, C, triple DES is unbreakable, or D, there is no difference. DES was the standard prior, prior to, to AES, and uh, that actually had a 56 or 64-bit key mode. In this particular case, triple DES is basically stringing together three, three DES encryptions in right. a row. Overlaid so if you do it properly, you'd use three different keys associated with that. So I would say under 92-bit, but um, nevertheless, AES is the, uh, is the standard now. You could use and I think it's probably accurate to say 64-bit blocks. Were you referring to the key there, John, or is it just the, uh, you're referring to the... Um... <laughs> you just got out technical. I can say, wow. I, I was, like, I was thinking more in terms of key. No, you're, you're talking about the, uh, the encryption blocks. Correct, the so encryption blocks. Clearly, A is the answer, nevertheless. And, and, that, and that is correct. Good job. Yeah, that one's a little trickier, and uh, okay. but I, again, AES is supposed to be more uh, as uh, more secure, so it's a little bit bigger. I tend to think in terms of keys rather than the the block size, but uh, that is significant depending on what how you're encrypting your data and how mm -hmm. that could uh, impact and things. All right, so um, let's take a quick look at the internet weather here, and you know, first item here is uh, scan probes on port 5060 TCP. Uh, you know, John, I had to actually consult with you on this. Mm -hmm. Normally. I think typically, typically it's session initiation protocol, which is you know basically the call setup for voice over IP, is 5060 UDP, mm -hmm. but it can be TCP. In fact, in, if you're doing things over the net, internet, that might actually be the better choice. Uh, yes. Well, in some cases, yeah, especially if you're behind a VPN provider that doesn't allow UDP. Uh, right. You know that if they're going to kind of. Well, tell and then for, in terms of firewall rules, that right, generally speaking, right. you're Sometimes better off that using gets a hiccup, uh, so they want to have some statefulness. Um, but yeah, 5060 TCP is valid. Yeah. I also found it interesting that Germany is where you're getting most of these probes from. I'll refrain from why I find that interesting. <laughs> However, there is a lot of fraud going on yeah. in, uh, in the voice over IP space, so this is not surprising to me. Yeah, so generally scanning scan around, looking for voice over IP gateways, seeing if you can bypass authentication, or, you know, in some cases, 
uh, the authentication requirements may be just missing or, or you know. Or they're easily guessable. You know, a lot yeah. of people uh, set up these like asterisk PBXs or mm -hmm. these other VoIP PBX platforms. They might set up phone extensions, right? So I've got extension 110 and 101 or 111, but then they make the password for it something simple like 110 or 111 <laughs> or 12345 which you should have a more complex password. So there are a lot of tools out there for brute forcing that type of thing mm -hmm. so that you can become an extension on that PBX. SIPVicious being one of those. SIPVicious is, is yeah. one. I think we've covered that on the show in the past, yep. but in any event, yeah. Yeah, so if, you know, if you're, you're interested in learning more about the tools that you should be protecting against, SIPVicious is one of the really popular ones that we've, uh, we've observed in use. Looking at the top 10 most probed ports, well, gee, not very many surprises here. Port 23 way at the top. Perhaps some of that is associated with the uh, botnet that you're referring to, the pseudo good, maybe not so malicious. But you would think that would be going away, right? Because if, so if they come in and they apply their malware, right, this reincarnate one, mm -hmm. It's not going to be scanning for Telnet. Oh, they're anymore, still competing. Well, they're here's still the, competing oh, that's true. I guess they have guys. to find the and devices. Then, that is one thing I did, men yeah. did not mention during the article is that um, this 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 benevolent malware actually doesn't scan. They're doing their scanning from some other central point. The mm. authors did mention that. So this oh. is not worming its way out through the network. So okay. ideally, so. we should see this. Oh, I we lost should. my voice. We should see it go down <laughs> the trend, mm -hmm. right? Hopefully, so sure. if they. I don't know either, but well, can, and then if the users reboot their, I know we're really sidetracked, but if they reboot their routers, right, then that stuff's going to go away exactly as well, vulnerable and then it's vulnerable for somebody else to come back in. That's again. exactly so. where I was going, is that you have to continue scanning, because as soon as somebody goes through a power cycle, all that stuff's going to go away, they're going to be vulnerable again, you have to come back in and patch it again right, from the beginning. So We're going to look at 23 a little bit closer in a moment here followed by 1433 TCP, that's Microsoft SQL database. We'll look at that one a little more closely. 445 TCP, we're gonna look at that one too. A couple of little interesting observations, nothing serious though. Followed by 22 TCP, that's SSH, port 80 TCP and 443 TCP, obviously, looking for the websites. 21 TCP, that's FTP, 3389, remote desktop protocol, and then 1900 UDP, that's simple service discovery protocol used in uh, reflective denial service attacks. Scan probes on port 23 TCP, that's Telnet, if you didn't already know. There are tens of thousands of sources. In fact, um, uh, I think up around, uh, we're going to take a little closer look at it. I think we're up around, on average, around 90,000 sources, maybe just short of that, on a given hour. So uh, over the course of a day, it might, might be much greater than that. The most aggressive sources that we're seeing here are from China. In this particular case, I just sort of wanted to point out that is over the last week or so, there's been a sort of a spike in the probing activity on that port, and you can see sort of the other spikes that have occurred over the last 30 days or so. Did you happen to get a chart of scan sources? I do have a chart of scan sources okay. a little bit later on here. Scan probes on port 1433 TCP, that's Microsoft SQL database. It's been in the, uh, the rankings of the top 10 for a little bit of a while now. I just wanted to remind you of the, uh, about say 50 days ago, there was sort of a bump in the activity probing on this port. You know, it's kind of interesting that this one is really kind of spiky yeah, compared to some of the others. Volatile. That's a little bizarre. I'm not sure what the, uh, the reasoning is behind that, but uh, the sources here, Primarily in China, there are actually lots of sources, not lots and lots, it's hundreds, but predominantly from China, and then uh, there are some in the U.S. and maybe a little smattering uh, beyond that. So it seems like there might be a little bit, some, somewhat of a systemic type issue that, that may exist that's, uh, that's causing this to have some regional bias, but I'm not sure quite what that is. Next one, scan probes on port 445 TCP. We've seen some spikes here, and I just sort of wanted to point out, we're looking at about 40 days worth of data in the primary graph. The spikes themselves actually appear to be denial of service attacks. That is, if you look at the trend over a long period of time, there's still that, for the most part, relatively subtle reduction in activity. But there have been, strangely, some sin attacks we don't see that many SYN attacks, and why somebody would choose to do a SYN attack on 445 TCP is not really clear to me, but it appears to be that's the case in some of these, uh, some of these situations. Now, it is a little bit curious around the uh, early September, there's a little bit of a dip in the activity, and then it's sort of built back up again, and I'm not sure if there's maybe some sort of a worm in the background that's... Looking at the patterns kind of, we're seeing, that they're, they're fairly regular until mm -hmm. that dip, and then it, I mean, there's... Yes. Yeah, it's interesting that there's definitely more, there's more sharper peaks after that right. dip. 
So there's an explanation for this, but uh, we don't have the full explanation. So uh, if you have any insight to it, certainly uh, we, we welcome your inputs uh, if, you, if you do. Next item here is in terms of the most sources doing the probing, port 23 really kind of taking the show here, followed by uh, 445 TCP, and uh, I guess most notably 22 TCP. You know, a lot of these devices have SSH access, not necessarily. And, you know, sometimes they're just targeting Linux systems, not necessarily things, but just uh, Linux systems, and SSH tends to be open more often than not to those systems. So taking a little closer look at port 23 in terms of scan sources, we're looking at about 90 days worth of data here. And there is sort of a gradual increase in activity over the last 90 days. And of course, back in May, there was a pretty big jump in that activity. It's not at record levels yet, but it's certainly, I would think in terms of the trend, relatively at rec record levels. Yeah. And it looks like it's still kind of still on a slight right. up incline here. It still looks like it's on an upward so incline, which is, which is not helping. Well, <laughs> or at least again. not represented in this graph. <laughs> right. Well, and in fact, that is pretty telling. That is, if they're using a separate scanning point, which would maybe a small number of addresses, relatively speaking, rather than warming out, mm -hmm. this would be an indication that uh, that reincarna is not entirely successful at uh, grabbing access to these systems. Right. It may take a very long time for them to be able to gain access because they are waiting for that system to reboot in order to have it open up and actually be accessible. Hmm. Is, these folks have had the head start in actually being able to capture this right. system. And how often do people's routers reboot? Right. You know, that's not the other thing. Often. So once they are compromised, you gotta wait mm -hmm. for something to happen, a power outage or some reason yeah. for that device to reboot. Or the internet doesn't work. Right. You, you do that right, home, right? right? Yeah. When it doesn't work, you hold the My wife yells at me. Right. <laughs> My iPad can't get to this website. All right. I'll reboot it. <laughs> On that note, that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's on YouTube as well as on iTunes, uh, just on audio version on iTunes, however. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attsecurity. So I'd like to thank you, John Markley, for joining us today. Thanks, John Hogeboom, Matt Kaiser. I'm Brian Rexrode, and we'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. And one final note, keep an eye on the ATT Cybersecurity Conference webpage. Uh, we'll provide a URL for you. And uh, if you haven't registered already, go ahead and register. The videos from that, uh, from that conference will be available to you as well. Views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.